The reading is taken from Amos, chapter 8, starting at verse 4. Hear this, you who trample the needy, and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath ended, that we may market wheat? Skimping the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales. Buying the poor with silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up, and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon, and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning, and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of water, of, of food, or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the shame of Samaria will say, as surely as your God lives, O Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars, so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. Though they dig down to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He who builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Aramaeans from Kerr? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword, and those who say, 
disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow away from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord. Uh, Thank you for bringing us that. That's an unusual reading, isn't it? Uh, Although not, if you've been with us uh, for the book of Amos. Slightly longer, but uh, we're finishing the book today, as I'd promised. It's um, nine chapters of blood and thunder, really, and then five verses of mercy and grace at the end. But we do get there today. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father, you know our hearts better than we know them ourselves. And as we gather here this morning, we have many burdens and anxieties, and we want you to address them, and yet you confront us with this brutal word. And we wonder, is this really what we need today? Is this really what we need for this week? But you know us better than we know ourselves. And so, Father, would you impress this truth by your Spirit upon our hearts, because it is what we need to know that you are the perfect and righteous God whose presence bears no sin and you will judge this world with justice and how we need to know that and we can find mercy in Jesus Christ and how we need to know that. So Father, teach us what we need to hear this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I say, then, this is our last week looking at the book of Amos, this prophet uh, sent to prophesy in Israel around the year 760 BC, so a goodly time ago. And uh, the, as I say, nine chapters, really, of this, this book recorded, perhaps one sermon, I don't know, uh, is a warning that God would soon allow uh, the nation of Assyria, the superpower of the time, to come and invade and, in fact, destroy uh, Israel. That took place almost 40 years later in 722 BC. But what is very clear from the book, and indeed this chapter, and chapter 9 in particular, is this is the Lord's action. I will, I will judge you, destroy you, seek you. And if you're just joining us today, uh, golly, there's too much to catch up on really, but um, there's a sense, even in just in the beginning of chapter 8, there's a summary really of why, why this judgment will come upon this nation of Israel. So chapter 8 and verse 4, Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land. The culture was an obsessive materialism. Gain as much as you can at the expense of others. And if the marginalized in particular suffered so you could become more wealthy, good, good, because it's all about me. And the Lord says, oh, that's despicable. Or verse 5, what's this? When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, that the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat? For goodness sake, when will this sermon be over so I can go out and do something useful, they say? They say. (laughs) Uh, 
So again, in, in, we saw particularly in chapter 5, this sort of self-absorbed worship. I come to church for my benefit. It's all about me. It's all about me. Do I feel better when I leave? All about me. This obsessive, self-centered worship. Or then again, verse 6, it's just corruption, really. Buying the poor with silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. That is, exploiting them to gain. Uh, end of verse 6, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Nothing new in that. Uh, bumping up your crop with nonsense in order to get a better margin upon it. And so, verse 7, the Lord has sworn, I will never forget anything they've done. I do know what you're doing, says the Lord. And yet, the people in Amos's day, I don't know, I, someone put it to me like this, it's a bit like, Going to a restaurant, you know, a high-end restaurant, I don't know, elevated southwestern cuisine, whatever it may be, a high-end uh, restaurant, uh, and uh, you read the menu and you look at everything on the menu and you just order like crazy. The most expensive cocktails, different wine with every course, liqueurs afterwards, you really pile it on and then eventually the bill comes, you say, well, I wasn't expecting that. That's deeply unreasonable. I mean, some of you may have done that. Um, well, how, how, how could the bill be quite so expensive? Well, it was all there. The prices were on the menu. It wasn't that sort of restaurant where they don't even list the prices. And Amos would say, what do, you, what do you expect the Lord to do? He's told you what he's like. He's told you what he loves. He's told you how to treat others. And yet, you just recklessly disregard that and say, well, it's completely unreasonable for the Lord to come back at us. No, he's warned you and told you. What did you think would happen? And so really in this section, the day of the Lord, days are coming, days are coming, is the dominant idea. Now, um, people then did believe in this day of the Lord. Uh, actually, chapter 5, verse 18 is the first time it appears uh, I think in the prophetic literature, so, and there it's the people talking about it when the day of the Lord comes. So this is clearly an idea that was in the culture. A day would come when the Lord would justify his people. There'd be vindication for them. Everyone's very excited about that. Oh, when the day of the Lord comes, you know, we're quite an affluent nation, but then, well, you know, we'll become super, super affluent and all will be well. But there's shocks, two shocks for Amos's audience. Uh, the first is simply, God will fight against you on that day, not for you. Uh, and the second, perhaps a little more subtle, is it's not just one day we're talking about. It's evident, it seems to me, in Amos 8 and 9, but certainly as the revelation of the Bible progresses, there isn't one day of the Lord. There are a number of days. Whenever the Lord comes to bring justice is a day of the Lord. But as revelation becomes clearer, it's evident that there are two... Well, certainly in the Old Testament, I think you'd say there's, it builds towards a climactic day of the Lord when the God himself comes... And from the perspective of the New Testament, we'd say, yeah, well, they're obviously the two most significant days of the Lord. The Lord himself comes in the person of Jesus Christ and dies upon the cross on the day of the Lord. And when Jesus comes again, his second coming is the day of the Lord that we would now be looking towards. And for you and for me, those are the significant ones 
the day of God's judgment upon the cross and the day when Jesus returns again. So for you and me, those are the the days we need to concern ourselves with. Now again, you can't read this book of Amos without recognizing that a number of us here, whether actually we'd call ourselves Christians or not, are a little embarrassed by, by that sort of talk and the strength of language in Amos well, 8 and 9 that the Lord will judge. Embarrassing to us? Perhaps worse, appalling to us? Maybe sometimes we feel that way. And of course, you don't have to go very long in a discussion with someone. I mean, it happens all the time. If if I engage in conversation, someone will say, my God, my God will never judge anyone and send them to hell. My God would never create a place and send anyone to hell. And of course they wouldn't. Because your God is a, well, he's a little pussycat. He's a figment of your imagination. He's a spiritual teddy bear who, if he exists, sits in heaven at the moment, looking down upon the earth, saying, oh, they are nasty to one another. But I'm a teddy bear, and I can't do anything about it. And that is not the God of the Scriptures. That is not the true and living God. As we began Amos, he reveals himself not as a teddy bear, but as a roaring lion, one who is not to be resisted. And actually, as I thought about it this week... um, It is the thought of tolerating sin rather than punishing it that is embarrassing to the God of the Scriptures, if I can put it that way. The biblical view is to just tolerate sin and do nothing about it. That's awful. That's awful. Judging sin, that's good. And somehow we can get that upside down in our heads. And so we can be indifferent to the wickedness of this world, and we can be indifferent to the pain and suffering that takes place, because it doesn't affect us. As long as we're okay in our houses and our community, the fact we see stuff on the telly, or you know, there's a yellow plaque goes up at the end of our street, someone was murdered here, well it wasn't me, so you know, as long as it doesn't affect the house prices, I'm okay, it doesn't matter too, too much. That's indifference. That's a refusal to care. That's what we should be embarrassed about, says the book of Amos. Whereas the the Lord is not selfish like us. He cares about all injustice, all suffering. He's not self-absorbed like you and me. And he will punish sin. And it it is to his glory that there's a day of the Lord, a day of judgment when justice comes. And we should never be embarrassed by that. It's entirely right, as Amos does, to warm people with tears that it affects them. That's entirely right. But not be embarrassed. It's to be indifferent to injustice or suffering. That's embarrassing. The day of the Lord. Uh, it breaks down in a number of different ways. Let me uh, let me work, or let's try and work through it uh, in these four. There's the day of catastrophe, the day of famine, the day of no escape, the day of restoration. Doesn't the last one sound good? Okay, let's work through them. Verse, chapter 8 and verses 8 to 10, there's the day of catastrophe. Here then you've got two pictures, two pictures of creation collapsing, essentially, I think. It's catastrophic. 
and results in you know, very painful grief. So first of all, you've got the land. Uh, verse 8, will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile, it'll be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt, a great earthquake. And verse 9, a solar eclipse. I will make the sun go down at noon, darken the earth in broad daylight. I'll turn your religious feasts into mourning, your singing into weeping. Golly. So they're there for a feast, but it all goes wrong. So we had to, uh, well, we're in it really, but wedding season and uh, weddings, um, I don't know how many you're going to or attending or having yourself uh, uh, in the uh, the coming uh, months or so. But wedding season is upon us. So next Saturday, uh, there'll be a wedding here in church, Chris and Karis who get married. And if it's been anything like the last week, it'd be lovely, you know, people come in and the sun streams and the bride comes in. It's glorious. And the music, no doubt, professional musicians, so no doubt, uh, the standard of music will be high in the service. Uh, wonderful. Sun streams through. And then all of a sudden, the cloud gets a bit dark. Mm, shame, I hope it won't rain for the photos. No, you've got worse problems than that because the whole church starts shaking. You know, the angels collapse with their vuvuzulas. And, um, uh, you know, everyone starts running. And people, instead of here comes the bride, it's all of a sudden a slightly different occasion. It's a little bit tearful. Well, that's right. That's what's happening. That's the description here. And this is what took place. It's a description of what took place in the year 722 BC when the Assyrian army marched in, invaded, destroyed Samaria. That's the immediate fulfillment of what Amos was talking about here in chapter 8. And yet, and yet, if you've ever read one of the accounts of the life and death of Jesus Christ, it's hard not to read this and think this is also a description of Good Friday. Verse 9, the sun will go down at noon. Well, that's right. When Christ is upon the cross, it goes dark at noon. The people are gathered for a religious feast. That's right. They're gathered for Passover. It's like mourning for an only son at the end of a bitter day. Well, that's right. Incredibly bitter day when God the Father gives his only son on that day of mourning. And the earth shakes, yes, quite right. As Christ dies, Matthew 27 will tell us, the earth shakes, rocks split open. So you can't help but read this. If you've read the New Testament and think, this sounds quite a lot like the day Christ died. Well, that's right. Amos didn't know that. Amos is thinking of the year 722 BC. But for you and for me, again, that's the day of the Lord, or one of them that we need to care about. The day when sin is punished. The day of catastrophe is the first, the day of catastrophe. Second, in verses 11 to 14, the day of famine. And the picture shifts. So verse 11, the days are coming, dot, 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 uh, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst of water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Well, back in chapter 4, the Lord revealed that he'd sent literally physical famine of food and water uh, against uh, the people to try and, oh, excuse me, I uh, forgot that was on, uh, to try and uh, wake them up a little bit. It was actually planned for once. The, um, it got literally sent a famine to wake them up. That word. There's going to be a famine of the word of God. How extraordinary. Not as warning this time. This is judgment upon them. And so the terrible picture of verse 12 is people staggering from sea to sea, north, east. 
When the word of God has gone, people will go anywhere, try anything to try and get some wisdom for life and know what they're to do. The people had rejected God's word and now it's withdrawn from them. It's a horrible picture. I don't think it's literally the case that all the books have disappeared. Quite often I go to, um, in my study, I'll go to my bookcase and say, right, where's that book of, uh, who's borrowed it and not given it back? And uh, that's just a chance for an amnesty if you have borrowed a book. <laughs> there says one or two, aren't there? Um, but I go, who's borrowed it? I don't think it's as in literally in those days. Has anyone seen the word of the Lord? It was right next there, right there next to how to cook with lamb. And all of a sudden... It's gone. Where's it gone? Not literally, because the prophets, God's prophets, were still proclaiming the word of the Lord. But as a general pattern, no one was listening. And no one of the religious teachers was teaching it. It had gone broadly. A famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, I wonder, I wonder if in part that's the experience that Perhaps the West knows now. I had an extraordinary thing this week that uh, uh, in Europe, Europe has 3% of the world's evangelical Christians. Isn't that an extraordinary statistic? It is a broadest way of defining that term as well. 3% in Europe. So extraordinary. Is that in part because there's a famine of the word of God? You can go to churches up and down this land, uh, across continental Europe, many, many more. And there's no, there's, things may be read, perhaps, but no one is teaching, explaining the word of God. And so people stagger. How do we live? What's right? What's wrong? How, oh, who knows? Now, particularly vulnerable, according to Amos in verse 13, are the young the lovely young men and strong young women in particular will faint because they thirst for the word of God. So if you are, and I, can, and I look out, there are some very lovely young men and lovely young women in front, and uh, there are some who are not, but consider themselves that way. That's okay. But it, Amos is, I guess Amos is saying, generally, broadly speaking, if you're young... There is an openness to new ideas, new experiences, which perhaps isn't there so much when you get older. Now, that's a neutral thing. 